Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast episode number 88. And today we are doing the first in a two-part series on inclusive excellence. These are incredibly important conversations to be having in food and food production. I'm so glad you've decided to join me. Get a pen and paper, as always, take some notes, and then come to the proving box and ask questions. I'll see you on the inside. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Development Institute podcast, where we serve up truth so that you can build the profitable, sustainable food business you've always dreamed of. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. Alrighty, everybody, and welcome, Dr. P in the house here. We are coming to you uh, live from a very, very rainy Maine, <laughs> and um, today we have an incredibly important conversation. So you have been um, getting like on the email list, we've been sending you out emails around what we are doing around here for um, uh, to call forth the issues in specific in like around Black Lives Matter and what uh, is going on in the larger racial conversation in the United States. And we've sent out two emails so far this week, kind of talking about what we're doing and defining um, some of the terms and, and that sort of thing. And then tomorrow, Friday, we are going to be sending out the standard operating procedure. I was actually just finishing writing this <laughs> uh, for uh, right before right before I got on here. And this, so what we're going to do is, is this is going to be a, a two-parter, okay? So this week, I am going to talk about the background and how I come to this work and how I think about social justice and inclusion and intercultural competence. And then next week, after y'all have gotten a chance to get the SOP, okay, um, so if you're on the if you're on the mailing list, it's going out. It's we're going out as a download, you're, and you're not going to have to like put in your information. I already have your information if you're on my list, um, but it'll get it's less likely to get caught in spam filters. Okay, so you'll be able to download it, um, and we're going to have it as a Word version, so that you can like I'm not a big believer in giving away PDFs because all of the SOPs that I write, I need you to actually enact and you're rather more likely to do it if you can actually put your own name and address in there. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna, it's gonna be a Word file that you'll download. It will also be available in the file section on the proofing box on Facebook. So if you are not part of our Facebook group, you can um, come just put the proofing box in the Facebook search bar and you will be able to uh, you'll be able to download it from um, from the file section on the proof, proofing box. And I just I want to I want to point out that I'm doing it this way because for a couple of different reasons. One, um, in my history, so just and maybe I'll just start there, and it'll give you it'll give you a little more uh, a little more context and background. So. Uh, I am white identifying, okay? I was born to white parents and I was born in Mexico. My birth certificate is in Spanish and uh, there are laws that this administration is trying to overturn um, that will um, not be visited well upon my head. 
I had to give up my Mexican citizenship to commission as a U.S. Army officer. You were not allowed or were not at the time allowed to be a dual citizen um, and be an Army officer because remember officers commission um, uh, the enlisted personnel enlist and it's different, okay? Um, and so there are people in the current administration that are trying to overturn the law that makes me a citizen. I, and then if that happens, I will have to apply for citizenship either through my husband or my kids. Um, and so there is, I have, I have skin in this game, um, as white identifying as I am. I mean, I'm so white guys, like I'm a pale shade of blue. I qualify for the Daughters of the American Revolution and the Daughters of Confederacy, of the Confederacy. Um, not that I would ever join those organizations, um, but we are, like, my family is buried in the oldest white people cemetery in the United States. And we have a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. I am not gonna lie. Okay. Um, and I think, and I don't want to speak out of turn for my brother, but I, I, I you know, he's been on this podcast, you guys have heard him. Uh, we are very aware of that history, okay? And I myself believe in reparations. Um, I absolutely believe in reparations. And uh, that's one of the things that I am called to do. And so I'm putting that, I am putting that out there. Um, I have had my own painful journey with my own racism. I was raised in Fairfield County, Connecticut, and then I went to Wellesley College and I had some pretty cringeworthy things that I did at college for which I apologize. I was not an awesome human being when it came to race relations because I was a moron. Uh, and uh, the universe, and I had some very, very patient people that taught me. <laughs> and there were some, you know, my dean was, was more gentle with me than I probably deserved. And I will tell you right now that we all deserve... Uh, Okay, we all deserve somebody in our, in the, the women of color in our lives. Uh, um, and I don't wanna say deserve, but like, I didn't deserve how well I was treated. Um, and we owe a debt of gratitude specifically to women of color around this conversation. Um, and I wanna express that gratitude um, to my friends and colleagues who have over the now decades since college and up through my current professional career who have held me in this space and forgiven me um, for being an oblivious moron, <laughs> right? And I wanna point out that, that we're having this conversation um, and, and that's how I come to this work. I come to this work because I believe in the transformative nature of recentering agriculture on our regions. But that conversation is a conversation that we have to have with the people who actually work our food, okay? And the people who actually work our food don't look like me, right? Not the most of them. The owners are white and the workers are people of color and of varying ethnicities. And, and different ways of, of speaking, they have different languages. Like this is like actually written into benchmark standards that you have to communicate with people in the language that they speak and write if you wanna pass an SQF audit. So we recognize this in some limited way in foods. And I'm, I am here furthering that conversation because I 100% believe that it is my responsibility as a privileged white woman to speak about this 
to other white people, okay? And I'm inviting you to, into the conversation around goal, the goals of inclusive excellence, where we center conversations um, on what our colleagues of color and other cultures, the way they want to be centered. And that's really important to think about. Not every brown person in your organization wants to be your diversity and inclusion officer. Some of them just want to do their job that they were hired for. Okay. So we don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be promoting, um, you know, like your diversity and inclusion efforts. You know, you put somebody on a committee and you don't pay them anymore. That's not diversity and inclusion. Okay. I want to ask you to join me in the conversation around being an example of what is possible when we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. Conversations about race are not comfortable, okay? They're not supposed to be. If you are doing your thought work that I've been talking about, about race, getting yourself to a place where, as, as my, um, my colleague Carl Lowenthal says, where your brain isn't breaking, then you're not doing it right. If your brain is breaking, then you're doing it right. Uh, you know, if, if your brain just wants to quit, you're in the exact right spot that you need to be, okay? And then you don't quit. <laughs> and I wanna invite you to, if you are a white identifying person, I want to invite you into the conversation about being an example of what we can do to be part of the conversation, to be brave and to make mistakes. Uh, I will screw this up, uh, okay? I will screw this up and um, I will then go back and do my best to fix it. But you know, like given my family history with long line of screw ups, I won't be the last. <laughs> Not the first, won't be the last. And I wanna point out that these are uncomfortable conversations first because because these are uncomfortable conversations with, with white folks. And that's totally okay because my friends of color have heartbreaking conversations with their little black boys, okay, about how to be a black man in America. And it really feels like kind of the least I can do to stand in my own discomfort and, and, and have these conversations with you and, and bring the conversation to, to a larger audience, okay? And then second, I want to point out that nobody, nobody is born racist, okay? It's a thought, all right? It's a thought conditioned by reality around us. It is a thought people are taught. Whether you figure that out by watching the many lessons that South Pacific taught us, not just in you've got to be taught the song, um, problematic in other self specifics problematic in other ways, like much of Rogers and Hammerstein's work. Um, if you were, if you were brought to this realization that, that racism and, and the way we communicate about racism is a hundred percent taught, these are all man-made constructs. Okay. Whether you agree with them or you disagree with them, these are all man-made constructs. Okay. And no one's no one's born a racist, okay? We learn it, it's the air we breathe as white people. And one of the reasons that these conversations are uncomfortable is because nobody likes being called a racist because of what we make it mean. Uh, 
okay? We as white people make racism mean that we individually hate black people. Racism is a system, guys. Racism is the system where you are um, assumed to be on drugs if you go to the ER. Racism is the system that you are assumed to be in the wrong place if you are driving a nice car in a nice neighborhood. Racism is the system that when I was buying a house in Georgia, my real estate agent wouldn't let me look at the houses in the black neighborhoods near school where I could bike to school and I didn't have to drive. That's racism, okay? Uh, um, it's a system. It's, it's the what's going on in our police departments, what's going on in our school systems, what's going on in our American government. The system is operating as it was designed because our system, guys, was designed by slaveholders. And I wanna be super, super clear about that. It was designed and it is being executed in the way that it was intended. Uh, Okay, and the people who have come out on top have come out on top because that's the way the system was designed. Uh, it does not mean when somebody calls you out uh, that you are individually a horrifying human being. Uh, okay, you are whole and worthy and lovable and you can be loving and you can be doing your level best and you can still be a racist. Uh, okay. And so I just want everybody to be super clear on that point, okay? And your worthiness as a human being is not in question here. Your ability to be in discomfort around racial conversations, on the other hand, is what we're working through. So just, just you know, and, and also it's a choice. It's abs, it's 100% a choice, guys. You don't have to do this work. You really don't, so, okay? And there are, in several of the predominantly white communities um, that I am a part of, a lot of people who are just flat not willing to do this work. You don't have to, you do not have to grow and evolve. I promise. But this is work that we do in our businesses, the same way we work on our money mindset, the same way we work on our ability to do the right thing the right way every single time we do it, uh, okay? And we do it by de deciding what results we want to get ahead of time. And the results I want to get ahead of time is to create an ongoing system where companies, where food companies have a methodology by which they strive towards continuous process improvement and inclusive excellence. Like inclusive excellence kind of has continuous process improvement written into it. You'll see that in the SOP. Uh, Okay, so continuous process improvement. <laughs> That's what we are looking for because we're not gonna get it right the first time. So we'll just keep working on getting it, on getting it right, okay? So with all of that background, I want to kind of dive into the meat, the meat of the matter, if you will, all right? Now that you know all of these things, I want you to figure out what you're gonna do. Are you willing to be uncomfortable and use this as a way to grow and change and learn how to manage your own mind so that you can do the work of re-regionalizing food systems in a way that includes everybody, all right? So to start, what I wanna do is, I wanna start with privilege and identity, okay? And we, we define that by defining culture. 
so culture is the, and these are not my definitions. I have been doing, you know, like I have been trained in this sort of stuff. And then I have lots of good teachers and lots of information that I have, you know, for lack of a better word, cribbed from the internet. Um, to, to create all of this. Okay. So culture is, um, an integrated pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior that depends on the capacity for learning and transmitting knowledge to succeeding generations. So if you take a sociology class, culture is transmitted across the generations. Okay. Um, and there are lots of things to talk about, about internalized, uh, systems of thought um, that are passed down through the generations. Okay, that's a big part of this conversation. Culture is also a shared set of attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize a group of individuals or an institution or an organization. So when we look at a proofing box, okay, I can diagram the food safety culture of your organization. When we look at a food safety at a, at a proofing box, I can diagram the cultural competence of your organization as well. Okay. Because your culture is how you do it here. What results are you going after? How are you thinking about it? And how are you actually doing it? That is your company culture. Okay. Whether it's around making money or whether putting up your website and how you do your technology or how you meet your critical control points. Okay. That's your culture. We have culture around racial equity and inclusion. We have culture around food safety, but people have culture, right? Uh, so that's part of, that's how they, how a family does it is their company culture or their family culture, sorry. And that has a lot to do with how the parents were raised and in what culture they were raised and how their family did it, okay? So then the second core concept is identity, which is the distinguishing characteristics uh, that somebody has seen or unseen and the condition of being the same with something that's either described or asserted. Okay. So I have distinguishing characteristics, like I'm white. That's one of my distinguishing characteristics. I'm female, also a distinguishing characteristic, you know, and so there are whole conversations that we have around inclusion around those two labels. Age, gender, religious, spiritual affiliation, sexual orientation, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, also very important here. These are all identities. Where you are in your work hierarchy is also an identity. Are you somebody who has your hands on the food or are you in leadership? And I would say everybody's in leadership but are you part of the executive structure? Like that's an identity that you carry at work. That's very important for the work that we do. Um, some identities are things that people can see easily like job titles and race or assumed gender, while other identities are internalized and not always easy to see like disabilities, socioeconomic status or education level. I have, I'm a service connected veteran, right? Nobody would know, first of all, nobody assumes I'm a veteran because I'm a woman, but um, nobody, nobody would know I was a service connected veteran. I have all of my limbs. I have no visible scars from my service connection. I have the world's dumbest service connection. Okay. And, and I'm totally forthcoming about it, but service connected I am. <laughs> okay. Um, and so 
there is, it's so it's important to understand that there are things that we can see and things that we cannot see that form our identities. There are two types of identities that need to be defined as well, specifically around equity and inclusion, okay? And those are the identities around majority status, okay, also called agent status in this work, um, and secondary identities around minority status or target status, um, okay? So what are those definitions? An agent, somebody in the majority, is the member of the dominant social group, just privileged by birth or acquisition, who knowingly or unknowingly exploit and reap unfair advantage over members of target groups, okay? So there are people who have significant agency, all right, that other people just flat don't have, okay? And one of the characteristics of agency is you get to define the conversation, right? Then targets are members of social identity groups who are discriminated against, marginalized, disenfranchised, oppressed, exp or exploited by an oppressor and an oppressor's systems of institutions uh, without identity apart from the target group, and they're compartmentalized and defined into roles. So my coach had a conversation with all her certified coaches yesterday, and one of the people who was talking was a, a woman who's a first-generation Mexican-American. And she, in her coaching work, had identified her own internalized... Uh, internalized racism and if you don't know what that is we can have a conversation about that too her own internalized racism um that the mexicans are the help and it was heartbreaking to hear her journey about how she uncovered that thought about herself okay um and it's incredibly important that we understand as a you know for the white identifying people in the audience as a dominant culture um, there are internalized biases that target cultures have, target groups have picked up on as a means of survival. <sighs> okay, like this is a survival mechanism normally adopted when we are young um, so that you can get along at school with your, you know, racist teachers, frankly. I mean, I had some teachers that were really pretty racist. I've had coworkers that were. Okay, um, and you adopt it as a, um, as a survival mechanism, okay? And then the question is, and the work to do, and it's all everybody's individual work around what are we now going to do when we see uh, those parts of ourselves and how do we lovingly hold ourselves accountable to the thoughts that we have? Because at points um, in most people's lives, they will have agent status. A parent has agent status over a child, okay? Most people will have agent status in some way as you shrink lives down, you, you, your, your life down into circumstances, like, like things we can't control. People will have agent status and they will also have, and then at other points they will also have target status and people can be both. Okay, I can have agent status as a white person and ta target status as a woman. Um, 
I can have agent status as a army veteran and I can have target status as a non-Vietnam era army veteran, okay? So there's some discussion whether Vietnam vets are target or agents. Um, it kind of depends, frankly, in my in my perspective on um, what section of the VA you're going to. In endocrinology, woman definitely target status, <laughs> okay? And that's not to say we have targets on our backs. I have a target on my back in a way that, um, in a way that our colleagues of color do. I don't. Okay. Um, and it's important to recognize, it's important to recognize that. Agents have the power to shape the conversation that they by default, because of programming or conditioning, are a party to and have created the oppressive systems. Like I'm a party to oppressive systems. You know, I was a legacy ad, like I could have gotten legacy admit uh, to Smith. I went to Wellesley, but my daughter could have legacy admit to Wellesley. Um, I'm white, she's white. There's only so much room in a class. That is a system, the legacy system in the Seven Sisters and the Ivies is a system of oppression, <laughs> right? Um, a system of oppression that Wellesley alums have been calling Wellesley out on it, and many of the Ivies and the small Ivies and that sort of thing, we've been calling them out. It's not an individual thing. It is a systemic one, okay? But individuals can change it. And so the key features of oppression are an agent group has the power to identify and name reality and determine what is normal, what is real and what is correct, okay? That's, that's the walking, talking definition of an agent. Differential and unequal treatment is institutionalized and systematic, okay? Psychological colonization of target groups occurs through socializing of uh, the oppressed to internalize their own oppressed conditions, okay? This one then turns into a conversation conversation where agents in the conversation say, see, see that person who we can all identify as part of the target group, see what they're saying, I am justified in oppression because they agree with me, okay? And I think you can probably see this in some of the things that are going around on Facebook this week. Um, the target group's culture, language, and history is misrepresented, discounted, or eradicated, and the dominant group culture is imposed. America's melting pot is literally that. Okay, this is not a melting pot. Like I, when I was in school, we were taught the, about the melting pot. Like you come here and you assimilate, uh, you know, we are the Borg, you will be assimilated, uh, right? And then we were looking more at a tossed salad metaphor, which I, which loses out really, really fast. Uh, okay, so, but the important part to take away is, is that the dominant group culture is imposed on other people, okay? These issues happen at both the micro and the macro scale, and I think everybody can identify with that. We've had times in school we've, where we've seen systematized and institutionalized oppression, where, you know, we read books and all the cops are white, right? Um, like, how many children's books is that true in? Uh, if you look at the children's books I was socialized with, uh, Robert McCloskey, Make Way for Ducklings. The police officers are all white guys, uh, okay? 
and then and then what that does is it creates a, a mode of a habitual mode of thinking that uh, there is you know like 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 the police officers are all white and then that marries up to habitual modes of thinking that white is good um okay and that's where internalized bias comes to have some really really big problems so there are problematic behaviors here including out including like i said pointing out someone else's agent oppression while ignoring one's own okay so um I see this when white owners say to me, this group that works on the floor, okay, and I have heard this about Mexicans, I have heard this about Hmong, I have heard this about Cambodians, I have heard this about other South Asian groups, I've heard this about the Chinese, I've heard this about the Somalis, um, I have heard white people say this about like every single ethnic group, okay, not every single one, but a, a lot of them that work in food. So. This, it sounds like this, it's a white manager when I start talking about how people are leading on the floor and what we're doing about team leadership. The blank, insert ethnic group here, does XYZ thing to other racial ethnic targets. Okay, ergo, white management doesn't have to do anything about it because there's internecine warfare amongst target audiences okay this is incredibly problematic and this happens in a lot of food manufacturing um, institutions like i've seen this in a lot of different places year after year after year after year and white management uses uses internecine warfare amongst target agents to excuse themselves from the intercultural competence conversation and i'm inviting you to stop that so, there are some target statuses that are more obvious, guys. Uh, for example, people can see woman or black first, and others may be easier to conceal, like the fact that I'm a service-connected vet. But each creates a burden on the individual and has its own set of challenges to overcome, okay? And so when we start having these conversations, it's really important to look at your own internalized thoughts, okay? And recognize, recognize where you have agency and where you are a target and what you are, what you are creating in your head. What are you thinking about that? And how does that feel, okay? Because that's the way through this. The way through this is to understand our own feelings, okay, and decide and come to it from free choice of individuals about how we're going to act about the world around us. Who do you want to be and how do you want to be uh, in the world around you? And if you're feeling overwhelmed, I want you to just keep narrowing and narrowing and narrowing what you are defining. Don't make it any bigger than a bread box when you start thinking about the things outside that you cannot control, okay? In thought work, one of the things that has been really problematic is, as we say, circumstances are neutral, okay? In the model from the Life Coach School where I am trained, circumstances are neutral. Racism is a system, it is a circumstance, and it is not neutral. A better way of thinking around that is 
there are things that are outside of my control. If something has happened in the past, okay, it is outside of your control to change, okay? If you are standing on, I want you to think of it this way. If you are standing on the scale in the morning, weighing yourself in that very moment, you can do nothing to change the number on the scale. That number is a circumstance, okay? Are there things, and I think everybody would say yes, there are certainly things in your life that you can do to change the number on the scale, okay? But in that very, very moment, there's literally nothing you can do, okay? So as you approach that work and as you start to feel overwhelmed, I want you to narrow down, I want you to zoom in on your life, on what's going on, on the meme in front of you, on the text in front of you, on the SOP that I'm about to, that I'm about to um, release and, and figure out what you are making that mean, um, okay? And what you are thinking about and stand in a place of worthiness of your own self and your own lovability, okay? And figure it out. So, um, all right, so that's what we have for this week. Next week, what I'm gonna do is, is I'm gonna be going over the standard operating procedure and I'm gonna be explaining the corrective action um, the, the corrective action report, like I wrote a car, right? So when we have racial bias incidences, we do corrective actions. Um, and I will be explaining that. So I want you to join us for that. Thank you so much to everybody who attended. Um, this is of course gonna be posted on the proofing box and we love you and we are here for you as you have this journey. Um, Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Be sure to join us in the Proofing Box, a private Facebook page for food producers filled with valuable information and technical tips. Grow your business by learning from people just like you, all under the guidance of a food safety expert. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute, podcast episode number 88. And today we are doing the first in a two-part series on inclusive excellence. These are incredibly important conversations to be having in food and food production. I'm so glad you've decided to join me, get a pen and paper as always, take some notes, and then come to the proofing box and ask questions. I'll see you on the inside.